Good evening, everybody. This is World Radio Day event, uh, the second part of the event today, which is a talk. And first of all, uh, thank you for being here tonight and making it all the way for those of you who were there during the trade fair. I hope you, you had the opportunity to meet all those wonderful organizations that were exhibiting today, NGOs. And second, for this talk, I want to first apologize for the full male panel, okay? We acknowledge, we put our hand up. Uh, unfortunately, Sharad had a, his colleague, Claudia, was our female representative, but she got ill and couldn't make it. Uh, by no means, the programming of these was made based on their gender. It was based on their organizations and what they do. So please, you know, um, bear with us. Uh, we, will, we will address this uh, somehow. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I think we're going to have a, a wonderful set of presentations from some of the, in my opinion, some of the most innovative and interesting research and interventions going on around the world today. Uh, we have, as you know, in the, in the program, we have representatives from uh, Cambridge University, Farm Radio International, who I'm, I'm very pleased they made it all the way from Canada to be here today. So we have a couple of international guests. So Kevin Perkins is here from Canada. And we also have Will Snell from Development Media International. We have um, Kevin Perkins from Farm Radio International. Sharad Trinivisan, that was wrong, I know, Cambridge University, and Daniel Bruce from Internews Europe. So we're going to hear some evidence about the role of radio in development in diverse areas such as health, public health, um, political participation, and other areas. So just for me to stop, I will play the, um, um, the role of keeping time. And also, we're going to have an opportunity to do questions and answers at the end. We're going to try to keep it short. And feel free to um, save your questions uh, for the end. When we finish the four presentations, then we're going to have questions and answers. I have a question already, actually. World Radio Day. Um, World Radio Day, London. <laughs> We have just been using World Radio Day uh, because UNESCO sort of suggested that. For those of you who know or don't know, World Radio Day was established four years ago by UNESCO to celebrate the medium of radio, especially the role of, uh, the, of radio in development. And this year is a, is a very interesting um, occasion because they, they are celebrating or we are celebrating radio and youth. And... Um, here at SOAS Radio, at least, well, that's what we do, radio and youth. And you had the opportunity to uh, listen to uh, John Cage's radio work performance just uh, a few minutes ago, which was uh, a very interesting uh, piece of entertainment, may I say. Uh, without further words from myself, I would like to introduce you to Sharat Srinivasan from Cambridge University. Thanks, Carlos, and it's uh, great to see so many of you here. 
Uh, really excited to celebrate World Radio Day uh, with you all and really happy to be on a panel like this. Um, some fantastic presentations and come, to come from organizations that I've got a huge amount of respect for, which is all very exciting. What I'm going to do is uh, set a scene that starts with a research project at the University of Cambridge. Uh, I'm there, I direct the Center, the Center of Governance and Human Rights. I'm very much an outward-focused um, center that is a research center, but interested in, in engaging with practitioners and policymakers. And we've had a project and an area of interest for some years now, looking at interactive uh, media, um, but in particular radio, um, in the African context. So I'm gonna talk a bit about a project, Politics and Interactive Media in Africa, the research of which has just wound up um, in the last year, um, with a research project with colleagues in Zambia and um, at University of Nairobi in Kenya. Uh, and then also talk a little bit about some, a spin-off or spin-out of that research called Africa's Voices Foundation, uh, which is a charity that we established at the end of last year, really to take some of our findings and learnings through our research process out into the world of practice. Uh, so I'm gonna start uh, the presentation with a reality check. I think it's a reality check that's a bit wasted on, on a group like this here today. Um, but, you know, World Radio Day, only four years old, in a sense it seems odd because we're sort of, in, you know, in our faces are technologies, digital technologies, social media, internet-based um, tools and apps, etc. Um, and yet we, we, we look to radio. And for me, there's a, a bit of a reality check, especially when, when it comes to um, radio in the African context where I, where I focus my attention. Um, and that is the fact that radio is still vitally, vitally important. For me, the reality check starts about a year and a half ago um, in Chipata in eastern Zambia. It's a lazy regional capital um, where I was, um, along with other colleagues of mine, for some years now, um, anthropologists, political scientists, a few of us from different backgrounds have been interested by chance, really, in, a, in one radio station there, Breeze FM. Um, and we've been looking at the kinds of programs they do, and in particular, the interactive shows. So I was sitting chatting to some journalists, and the owner of the station came up to me, Mike Dacker, and he said, look, you're interested in these interactive shows and what audiences think of them, you should talk to this guy. And so in came um, uh, this man here, Daxon Yingwe, uh, with his daughter, one of 16, and he lived um, about an hour away. And so he, we sat down and through an interpreter we had a conversation. He told me that he was born in 1915 um, and that, yeah, he lived an hour away and he just had a really rich life, lots of things that he told me about. Um, but he was particularly interested um, in Breeze FM and he'd been coming to town and he said to his daughter, I want to go to Breeze FM and I want to meet one of the presenters there. And he explained to me that when, before Breeze FM in the era of the one-party state and the state broadcaster and very limited media um, offerings, um, people, he said, were in the dark. They didn't really have access to the kinds of discussions and shows that mattered to them. And he felt that Breeze FM had really changed his life and the world around him. He was really excited about, especially the interactive shows, listening to people who were, in a sense, only over the mountain or um, you know, a mile or two away, but understanding their worldview and hearing ideas from them. And one particular uh, DJ called Gogo -Go Breeze or Grandfather Breeze was, was someone whose shows he really liked. And those were shows in which local issues were raised and through it, all in local language. And the, the, the presenter would sort of fall back onto um, custom and culture to understand ways forward or think, thinking about dilemmas that presented themselves in contemporary life. It was a show he particularly liked. And so he had a chance that day to record a session with Gogo -Go Breeze, um, and it was broadcast um, while I was there. And at the end of the show, Gogo -Go Breeze asked him, is there anything you'd like to add? And he said, well, I'm actually looking for a new partner. So he was 98 years old with 16 kids, but still going strong. 
Um, and of course, Daxon came into the studio, um, as an, you know, an elderly man, came into the studio to, to give his, have his voice um, broadcast on air. But these days, many people are phoning in, texting in, and, and, and the also the older practices of writing in and vox pops are really important. But it's that phenomenon of interactive radio shows that's been of real interest to us because they represent, in a sense, a new public spaces and spheres um, of engagement, of discussion, of voice. Um, and we're interested in particular in what implications they have for governance and politics. Um, another way of capturing this reality check is, is um, through numbers. And, this is just a very high-level uh, summary of uh, household surveys we did in Kenya and Zambia in one rural and one urban constituency in both countries. Um, and one of the things we were looking at is media and communications consumption. And the overall figures really point to radio and mobile um, as powerful um, forms of communication, much more than TV, newspaper, and the internet. Um, and in the rural context, that's even more pronounced. Um, so this is just the rural only at the bottom, and you see that internet, newspaper, and TV penetration is much, much lower. And this is the reality check in a sense that many of us in the room already know, but it's very important in, in, uh, when faced with the bright lights of fancy new technologies to really take this seriously. Um, this is more numbers and, and more ways of understanding and probing what I just presented before, and you know, some of you can absorb different parts of it. But what I guess we're pointed to for us was the interest of when, do, when does mobile phone ownership or access and radio listenership come together such that you have the conditions, the basic background conditions for interactive shows to potentially be quite broad and um, um, include many people. Um, and certainly in rural and urban Kenya in the constituency we looked at, that was a very um, strong indication, and also in urban Zambia. Um, but, you know, of course, access and digital divide sort of issues and, um, are still real in many parts of the continent, and, and so we shouldn't forget them. But it is interesting to think of how far things have come in the phenomenon of um, mobile phone access and, and, and obviously radio listenership, um, such that in places like Kenya, it's, it's very much a, a fully... So, um, supplied in, in most parts of the country, but not all, certainly. Um, so what we were interested in was interactive shows in particular. And what um, in, the, in the survey we did of, of households, we asked, have you ever participated in an interactive show? Um, and we also asked about listenership. And this graph just points to the fact that there's no real clear relationship in levels of participation and levels of listenership. So whereas levels of listenership varied between Kenya and, and Zambia quite a bit for interactive shows, participation in some senses was quite consistent or at least inconsistent. And so that made us ask questions about what's going on here, what drives people to participate in these shows as opposed to listen to, to them. Um, and, and that really got to a second sort of point that I just want to say that summarizes some of our research at present, which is a very basic and obvious point, that engagement um, in these sorts of shows must be engaging. And this is a point that we stress not so much for presenters of of, uh, and um, uh, media professionals who kind of get that, that's what they do, but it's especially for, um, I think, donors and NGOs that are interested in, in citizen engagement and governance um, um, for projects and scorecards and you know, budget tracking, et cetera, and who often, I think, are quite deterministic about the kind of content that they produce for radio, the kind of content that should go out, the kind of experts that should be, should be on, and the kinds of questions that should be asked, and um, then sort of a bit disappointed sometimes with the level of engagement that they get from audiences. Um, and we were just probing the kind of engagement in a sense that matters. So, you know, just going back, listenership to interactive shows is quite high. Participation is far lower, not surprising in that respect. Um, so that um, green bar is participation and, and the orange is, is, is listenership. Um, and 
the participation itself is relatively skewed. So this, this um, bar just shows the level of skew of different kind of socio-demographic characteristics of the, of the, um, the participation, um, those who participate compared to the sample. Um, and you see that the participant is on average more male, um, is likely to have high school education or, or more, um, likely to have an income that's above the average um, income, and likely to be slightly younger and maybe more urban overall, but those are much smaller um, effects. It's the, it's the male in um, education, um, gender in education that's most prominent. So you have a clear demographic spew, skew on who participates. Um, and that's even more so when it comes to current affairs and pol politics shows. Um, again, going by the, the, the survey that we did, um, you, know, you see an overall sample that's relatively balanced, the listenership is relatively balanced, general participation starts to skew towards more men, um, and then participation in current affairs and politics at 71% compared to 28.7% is skewed further again. So in our interest in politics and who's participating, this is obviously a real thing to take into account. Um, it's even, now that's, that split of 70-30 is actually um, even a bit overstated, um, or understated, sorry, because um, this was have you, the question we asked was have you ever participated? Um, often um, people participate one -off, on a one-off occasion but not regularly. Um, when it came to sort of looking at behavioral data, so data that actually collected for, from SMS the gender of, of people who participated in sending text messages to shows, um, the pattern was more, um, 80-20, um, 80% men, 20% women. And this is an example of a large sample of text messages sent to a radio station in um, Kisumu in Western Kenya, Radio Namlolwe, who we've worked with for some years on understanding their shows. And, um, and that was a pattern over about a two-week period of about 15,000 SMS that they got into the station. It's quite a large number. Um, but it also shows how show by show the, the participation can vary. So that also is interesting. Now this is the, the, the graph that's going to be poss possibly impossible to, to fully digest at once. But let me <laughs> tell you what's going on. In the middle is the green box, which is what we're interested in. Um, what, what, what drives participation in, in interactive shows? Um, and so we had, uh, um, to quite summarize, different ways of understanding from the literature and from theory possible determinants of who participates. There's issues of access and capability, which can be infrastructural, but also socio-structural. So do you have mobile phones, or is it just women who have less mobile phones than men? Um, then the socio-cultural dimension in terms of norms and values about who participates. Is this a public space, and who, who should and who shouldn't participate in, in such public spaces? Um, then potentially the determinant of political engagement. So are those who are more likely to vote or more likely to take up an issue with a local council also more likely to participate in these kinds of shows? Um, and then going around um, clockwork, the socio-psychological, -psych um, which is how all of this stuff gets internalized in certain ways amongst um, our audiences and the sort of dynamic of feedback loops of, well, all the participants are men anyway, so why would I want to participate? And that sort of, that sort of loop that goes on. And finally, of course, the media supply, um, the sort of shows that are available and the genres of the shows and the agendas that are set on the shows. And I will um, just want to mention one thing that really matters here, which is when that we controlled for all of the different socio-demographic characteristics and sort of pulled them out of the equation and sort, went to look for if, if there's anything else that's driving this. Um, something that we felt was really important was actually the mediation context, which is to say that the role of the radio station and the presenters in enabling or constraining a space that is inviting or, in a sense, dissuading participation is actually quite important. 
And this shows that, in a sense, the, 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 the radio space is a social space. It's partly embedded in the cultural and social context and the, and the political economy. The radio station can't transcend the problem of who has phones and who doesn't, who has credit, who doesn't, who feels that they have a right to say something or not. But in a sense, they can't transcend it, but they can influence it because presenters are able to, in a sense, shape the socio-cultural norms and possibilities um, as well in interesting ways. And so there's a space um, and a margin for the mediation to play a powerful role. And we got to that because of a way we modeled the, all the data. And the, 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 the core um, that you'll see in this, uh, that's relevant in this slide is just that the first four um, items there, um, whether people who were responding to the survey thought that the radio presenters had a bias for particular groups or others, um, whether they knew other participants in these shows, whether they trusted the shows, or whether they had a favorite show. Those factors actually influenced participation um, much more than factors um, um, down the bottom, which were more about people's sort of political agency and activism. So it seemed that participation was much more socially determined um, by the way that this space is convened by presenters and radio stations, and pointing to the, the power, in a way, of, of the, the shows themselves and the presenters in enabling and constraining um, this participa participatory space. Um, so having given a sense of um, the kind of approach that matters for engagement, there's another, there's another issue here, though. It's not all participation, and that's a really big thing that we, we came to realize. Like, what kind of engagement counts? Um, as, a, as we pointed out before, the listenership, which in, in this graph is um, presented by the sort of orange plus green, um, is very high across Kenya, urban and rural, and across Zambia on the right-hand side, um, urban is reasonably high and, and rural less so. But you, you, have, you have variation, but generally speaking, listenership to interactive shows is, is, is reasonably high and it's growing. Um, and the participation is, is much lower. But the listenership, in a sense, is a form of engagement. Um, the, the very popularity of interactive shows points to the fact that they're spaces in which people think that they get information that they value. And that came out in the survey when we asked you know, what are the main positive impacts of interactive shows? Um, so people were talk the thing that came out especially was that people felt that um, there's people have a voice, they get to speak out their concerns, but above all, that people are educated. These are shows where you get to listen to other people in society and community and, and learn something. And that's a real, you know, um, uh, response that's coming out. Now, given that the skew of participation is towards more male and more educated, et cetera, it's quite telling that you have a very wide listenership that's quite demographically spread and even um, that thinks that this is a space of education and a space of voice because it's, it's both a biased space and a space that people value. And that's the tension in a sense. And this is a form of engagement. Audiences are active. They're not, um, they're not sort of the passive end of this. They're actually a very active end of enabling and, and making important these shows because they're popular, they listen to them, they value them. That makes um, these shows um, quite powerful. Um, so I'm jumping along here, but for us, one of the things that came out of this was the fact that um, these are spaces that really matter. They might not be perfect spaces. They're not in necessarily the most inclusive spaces. They reflect the society in which they're situated. Um, but they're spaces that matter because people value them and they listen to them. So understanding what happens in interactive shows is quite interesting because you're understanding processes of social influence and have ideas that are changing and evolving over time. So we became quite interested in, in the fact that once you relax your ideal you know, participatory democracy um, hopes of this space. You nevertheless have a space that you should understand and, 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 and engage with. And why I raise this point of big data and valuing voices is that, in a sense, um, 
this huge amount of interaction that's going on, either through social media, but also with radio shows, is enabling new spaces and voices um, to emerge, but also new opportunities to understand and learn, to surveil all the, all the good and bad that comes with the flow of information. Um, so in a sense, we've pa I've painted a picture of these voices, in a sense, coming out across the continent and, and the radio stations being spaces that enable, uh, you know, fora that enable voices to, to be heard. Um, and as I said, they come in all different shapes and sizes, in local languages, um, in you know, phone-ins and text-ins, etc. Um, and I think there's, through that, there's also this opportunity that they present um, something which is all the vague, vogue these days, which is you know, big data. Is this an opportunity to amass and understand um, uh, across complex territories and terrains that otherwise are hard to, to get data from? And I think that's something that's going on in lots of other digital formats with apps, et cetera, but it's also something that maybe looms on the horizon with radio. And one of the problems is that the very same technologies that are enabling new voices in local languages that have often been hard to hear and hard to reach to, to be heard on radio are the same technologies um, that enable information to be transmitted, to be collected, to be stored, to be juiced, to be you know, um, uh, aggregated in ways that sometimes devalue and diminish the nature of those voices. So there's a real tension um, in this agenda between big data and valuing voices. And, and my one point that really I think is important to stress is I think that radio remains a, a space in which um, the, the diversity and plurality of languages and local cultures and contexts can really still be um, valued in, in, in important ways. In a sense, there's a countering and tempering um, um, effect on the importance of um, big data increasingly. And that really leads me just to, and where's Carlos for time, you can tell me, a couple of minutes? Yeah, okay, two minutes, just to end up on where this has all gone for us in terms of um, applied work. So we launched at the end of last year a charity called Africa's Voices Foundation, which is really aimed at trying to think about how um, you use radio, in particular an interactive radio, um, to um, engage, uh, which in particular means reach and um, uh, make possible and meaningful people to, to contribute, um, otherwise hard to hear and hard to reach um, voices. Um, and to analyze, but I think most, more important than analyze is probably to understand, um, so to, to value and respect voices in their original um, form rather than expect standardized surveys to be answered with A, B, C, or D answers or yes or no questions, but to let people express themselves as in conversations in social spaces that they value. And by being able to analyze that in sophisticated ways, that kind of, those expressions, to in effect to amplify them and to further empower these voices. And that's um, the sort of aim of what we're trying to do. I don't have time to go through um, too much of it, but we've worked um, pilot in radio stations in eight different sub-Saharan African countries and learned a lot about how we could um, work with this kind of format of interactive shows. Um, and then we've done some more harder end um, analysis of data. Um, this is just one example, a comic sensation in Kenya that works with youth but also has radio shows as well. Um, they came to us because um, they had... Uh, a huge circulation of comics and the Facebook page and um, reaching a lot of uh, the Kenyan population. Um, and I just want to show you, they, they got a lot of feedback online but also on text message. They came to us with a problem because they, they had um, about 240,000 text messages and they said, well, this is just because of interactions between young people in our characters in our comic and on the radio show. What can we do with that? How can we understand um, what the significance of, of all that data is? Um, and, um, and what we did was... Uh, they were particularly interested in a theme of contraception that they'd run and to see whether the, the, this SMS data could 
give them insight into how um, that um, work on contraception had worked or not. Um, so what we did is we produced a, a semantic network analysis um, of all the data, which will, what I really like about the slide is that you'll look at it and say, that's ridiculous. And, um, and they looked at it and said, well, that's actually quite interesting um, because what it was doing is it was showing them the relations between words and you could click on different um, um, demographics in the right and um, locations and age groups um, and then click on words and just see the, just the, you click on a word and then you'd see the messages down below that um, are related to, those to that word. So you'd see different messages, etc. cetera. Um, but what it was telling them was that something that they, in, that they intuited was actually quite true. They started off with a formal <coughs> language around contraception um, using the language of their donor in a sense around implants and condoms and blah, blah, blah. Um, and they, um, we were able to see whether that language entered into the discussion that young people were using when they were texting back to the characters. Um, but what they'd realized along the way, and this is that red line in this graph, is that at some point in time, the, the local slang, sheng language, which is an informal language, was um, some of the words around this theme were starting to become more prominent. And they started to use those words in their comics the second time around at the point of that red line. And we were able to basically just track um, two different lexicons, the formal lexicon around contraception and the slang um, shang, um, lexicon around converse, um, contraception. So basically, you see that um, at the formal um, uh, shang lexicon is going up and down in the first months, but when it comes to early 2014 and they start to focus on the, um, the informal lexicon, it basically starts to take off more and more, and this continues beyond even the data that you'll see here. Um, and what we were basically, sh they were interested was that it's the internalization of a formal language into an, a language that matters more to young people that was especially valuable and important to them. So by, by looking at this, this SMS data over a long period of time, we were able to sort of tell that story in a way that um, helped them understand how the program in, that they were um, pursuing had, had quite a dynamic and real um, effect. Um, so I'll leave it there and, um, and s uh, hopefully set a bit of a scene for much more practitioner-oriented stuff that's to come. But thank you. Thank you very much, Sharad. That was wonderful data there. Um, unfortunately, what I notice is that, again, in participation, male tends to be, you know, why? It's so wrong. Um, um, we're going to move on because I know it's Friday in, and it's not a lot of time for you to keep your concentration and, um, you know, the pub is calling and all of that. We are going to now pass on to um, Kevin Perkins from Farm Radio International. Now, I want just to say a word about Farm Radio International. It's one of those NGOs that when I started in radio, um, I kept looking at as, wow, how come these people have been doing this for so long? Uh, Farm Radio International is over 30 years old. I mean, Kevin will probably talk about it in detail. But it's inspired in, in a lot of the work of um, uh, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation in the 1950s, training uh, farmers in Canada. This is post-war agenda and, and making sure that uh, food security uh, was uh, addressed. And it was addressed through radio. So more than interested to listen to Kevin's presentation, but also very um, glad that he made it all the way from Canada to be here today. So next, Kevin Perkins from Farm Radio International. Thank you, Carlos. And 
Thanks and happy World Radio Day to everybody. It's a real pleasure to be here with you uh, today and talk to you a little bit about uh, our experience at Farm Radio International. I'm Kevin Perkins. I'm the Executive Director of Farm Radio International and I joined the organization in 2006 and it's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful eight years coming on to nine. Okay, well, it's uh, World Radio Day and, and uh, we, we did a bit of a campaign with some of our followers and our uh, social media kind of community, challenging them to complete that sentence, I love radio because. And uh, if you have something that you want to share, I welcome you to send it out there. Uh, I love radio, um, there's many reasons I do. But for me, what uh, makes it really powerful is both it's a, a mass medium that, that reaches many, but it's also very intimate, a very intimate uh, space where you can listen to conversations and hear people's stories and listen to music and feel part of a community and very uh, spoken to directly in your, in your ear. And I think it's that combination that is one of the things that makes it so powerful and, and enduring. So uh, as mentioned, uh, Farm Radio International, which used to be called Developing Countries Farm Radio Network, is uh, just finished uh, 35 years. And it was started by one of Canada's first uh, farm broadcasters, uh, a man named George Atkins. He did the new, noon hour farm radio show in Canada. It was on every single day at, at noon. And uh, in 77, I think it was, he traveled to Zambia uh, to gather with a group of <coughs> Commonwealth farm broadcasters from many different Commonwealth countries. And while he was with his peers in, in Zambia, he asked them, you know, what was your last show about? And the answers he heard were kind of discouraging to him. Uh, he heard things like, well, our last program was how to maintain the spark plugs in your tractor. And he said, well, I don't see too many tractors that the, the smallholders have. How, how many of your listeners benefit from that? And, and they said, well, pretty much none of my listeners benefit from that. So that, that was really uh, upsetting to him. But then he thought, well, what if we created a network and developed uh, radio scripts about sustainable uh, small-scale farming uh, solutions and share them with each other, broadcaster to broadcaster. Uh, would, you, would you use those, he asked his peers, would you use scripts like that if you had them? And they said, yes, we would. And that's all the encouragement he needed. He went back to Canada in 1979. He set, set out, uh, sent out his first batch of scripts by post in French, English, and Spanish, both in writing and in cassettes, and, and uh, carried on doing that. Still doing that to a degree, uh, radio scripts, but other written content as well, uh, how-to guides and so forth, and distributing them by, by post. But we also have gotten into doing more direct uh, project work with partners in uh, seven different countries right now in sub-Saharan Africa, where we work with partners to actually design and develop with radio stations, existing radio stations, that, will, that, that aim to have a particular impact on on farming communities. This is a mission that we've, uh, we've developed and it's changed a little bit in the last year that both kind of emphasizes the role of radio in, in sharing knowledge, distributing information, which is really how it was, that was the only role that was seen for it in the, in the, in the beginning, to a place that also amplifies voices as we just heard and, and, and provides a, a space where, where people, many different people can be heard from and their, their views can be expressed and taken into account and they can be part of the national or local conversations. And this is something that's been made possible or, or really more possible because of the 
interactive radio that you just heard a bit about from the previous speaker. And um, I'm just going to talk a bit about some of our experience and, and evaluations of interactive radio programs and strategies to just give some, uh, shine a bit of light on, on, on what the impact is of, of this kind of programming, the reach and the impact. <clears throat> so interactive radio for us means a, a, a kind of programming. It's not a one-way uh, delivery of information from broadcaster to listener. It's a space where, where you hear different voices and people can participate in different ways. And some of the new technology, mobile phones in particular, make it possible for people to participate from a distance. They can leave messages, phone in, text in, uh, uh, register a vote by leaving a missed call, that sort of thing. So it's interactive, uh, but, it, but, but it also um, allows uh, listeners to access the information at other times. <clears throat> we're, we're finding that's a very important thing. If, 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 if the people you're trying to reach are unable to listen at the hour the program is on and, and they miss an episode, what do they do? Or, or what, do they, what if they need to listen to it again? So it's part of, for, for us, interactive radio is giving listeners the opportunity to, to ask to listen to it again by sending a message with their phones, which sends the program or the content to their phones to listen to at their convenience. So uh, here are some of the things that we've seen inter interactive radio can do. It can really drive the adoption of, a, of an improved farming practice, whether it's a practice that farmers themselves developed in one area and can be transferred to farmers in another area, or whether it comes from, from uh, research institutions. A good interactive radio program can really lead to, to many people giving it a try on their farms. Um, it, can, uh, it can also provide really important advisory services, and farmers need advisory services, especially in a time of changing climate. They need weather advice advisories. They need market advisories. They need uh, information when, 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 when crises come and challenges come like, like Ebola or like uh, drought and interactive radio can provide that kind of advisory service. It can amplify the voices of people, gather up people's opinions and make those available to decision makers. Uh, and it can shift attitudes, uh, challenge stigmatizing attitudes. Um, and, and I'll talk about all those things more uh, through the rest of my presentation. So one of the approaches, interactive radio approaches we've used a lot is called the participatory radio campaign. And that's a, a campaign in the sense that it's planned and it's designed to encourage a broad population of, of farmers, in our case, to, to make an informed decision to, to try a new practice. And it's a practice they themselves have said that they want to learn more about. <clears throat> we found that uh, this approach has broad reach. It's listened to by, by, by many. On average, two-thirds of, of people within range of the program will tune in to it regularly. Uh, we've, we've seen that it increases the knowledge of listeners about the practice, and it encourages many to, to try it on their farms. So just a couple of examples. We, we did a, a program in Burkina Faso on, on nutrition for maternal health. Uh, that's a picture of the radio station's reach. We worked with uh, Radio Palabra, and we, we uh, have, have, have developed a method to map the reach using the height of the tower, location of the tower, and the, and the, and the signal strength, and then, the, and then the topography of the area around it. So the areas that are more orange uh, 
have a stronger signal. And then we can lay that over a population map, isolating uh, the, the numbers who live in communities with a certain population density to estimate the, the number who are rural or peri-urban. And we can further look at how many are adults um, and able to uh, act on this kind of information. So based on all of that, we're able to determine that 250,000 potential listeners were within range. And through a random survey, we found that two-thirds, again, said they listened to the program. So we can, we can estimate from that about how many people benefited uh, from the program, divide that by the, the cost of the program, and you can get a sense of the cost per listener, which is a question that many funders have. And it's just pennies, really, in most cases. Another example is a, a program we did in Ethiopia on, um, on, on methods of planting teff. Teff is a cereal in Ethiopia that's a staple uh, that improved the yield, basically row planting, uh, but also reducing the seeding rates and using more uh, higher yield seed varieties. <clears throat> so one of the stations, we worked with four different radio stations and, and we did the map for one of them. One of them had all these different transmitters. So we were able to determine about 3.7 million potential listeners were there. Almost 80% said they listened, so we're pretty confident that uh, about 2.9 million people uh, were, were able to benefit from, from hearing some of this information. Uh, one of the ways we try to get at the knowledge and whether these programs have uh, uh, impact on the knowledge of farmers is by administering a quiz, and we compare the quiz scores of people with different access to the, to the radio campaign. <clears throat> Uh, on the left there, is it on the left? Yeah, it's on the left are the people that listened to the campaign. On the far right are people who lived in communities that were outside the reach. Uh, there were also TEF farmers in the, in, to the same degree as the other communities, but they couldn't hear the programs. And the ones in the middle uh, were in communities that were reached by the signal, but they personally didn't listen. But they might have gained some knowledge from their neighbors who did listen because people talk uh, and learn from each other. Um, and you'll see the, the large difference uh, in the three sample sets with uh, about 78% of listeners, um, uh, or the average quiz result being 78% if they listened uh, versus uh, about 67% if they lived next door to someone who listened but they themselves didn't listen, and about 57% was a score if they had no access. And the other thing I'll point out uh, on this that's... Uh, interesting, maybe shouldn't be surprising, but it's a bit encouraging, is the gap between male and female knowledge levels, uh, in this case, was eliminated by uh, listening to the campaign. So uh, the knowledge quiz scores were the same for males and females if they listened to it, whereas there was quite a gap if they didn't. So again, that shouldn't be surprising. They had access to the same information, so learn the same amount. But what it really signals is the importance of making sure that the program is on air at a time women can listen, that it, the presenter is one that women trust and want to listen to, and that they have every encouragement and opportunity to, uh, to tune in. We also looked at the practice, how many uh, farmers actually started practicing uh, these row planting methods. There's a lot of information in this graph, but the purple, the purple piece on the top shows how many did nothing, none of the row planting at all. And you'll see if they listened, only about five, eight percent, about eight percent did nothing 
uh, whereas about 40% of those who didn't listen did nothing. <clears throat> and then quite a, quite a um, trend there in terms of how many did two or three practice, two or three out of the three. And about 80% of those who listened introduced two or three of the practices compared to 30% if they didn't listen. This was a, a survey we did, uh, uh, 1,247 respondents, and about one third of them were in, in, in each of these sample groups. So we've, we've evaluated about 25 participatory radio campaigns now across various countries, and while there's a range, they always follow the pattern I just presented to you. And the cost, when you look at those population, the numbers of people served, it's about three cents uh, per person served, and it's well under a dollar per farmer that tries a new practice. And anyone involved in agricultural extension knows that that's, that's very low. Um, the typical kind of extension services where extension workers go and visit farms or uh, it's 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars per farmer served. <clears throat> we also found that women will listen more uh, if it's broadcast at a time that they can listen, if it features women's voices, and, and, if, they, and if this improvement is something that they'll benefit from. Um, one of the things that we've introduced as a standard is most programs have a phone-in show. Most radio programs will have a, a phone-in show. And by having uh, the, the, the broadcaster have two phone-in lines, one line for men and one line for women, they can obviously have an equal number of male and female voices and it encourages women to phone more. They might get 1,000 calls to the male line and 100 calls to the female line, but they can alternate them and make sure there's 50-50. So it's a, it's a good way to really encourage more uh, diversity and gender equality in the, in the voices on the program. A little bit about the advisory services. Um, talk a bit about this weather advisory service. Um, we worked with the meteorological department in Tanzania to help write up a, a weather advisory which would forecast what was coming up in the weather and go beyond that to really talk about what, uh, what that means for farmers in terms of uh, what they should be doing on their farms. Is it time to plant? Is it time to weed? Is it time to harvest? And so forth. So the radio station broadcast these advisory services, but then because they wanted to be sure farmers could access it even when it wasn't on the air, uh, we created something called Beep for Weather. So in this service, a, a farmer phones a number and hangs up, and that triggers uh, an interactive voice response service to phone them back, and they can answer the call and listen to the weather advisory service at their convenience as many times as they want to uh, for free. And I have a little video that shows how it works, but I don't have time. Okay. <laughs> Amplifying uh, farmers' voices and in terms of that, uh, we heard a little bit about, about that in the, the previous talk, but I'll just talk a bit about this uh, poll we did in, in Tanzania last year. We were asked if we could uh, poll farmers across the country on, 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 on issues of their satisfaction with the agricultural support services and the agricultural policies for them, for smallholders. And over a, a period of two weeks, we worked with five radio stations which promoted the, the poll questions and invited listeners to vote. Uh, if they wanted to vote yes, they phoned one number and hung up. If they voted no, it was they dialed this different number and hung up. So by tallying the, 
missed calls for the yes and no, they'd have a quick uh, tally of, of, of how the farmers are voting on that issue. And then the final question was a multiple choice where farmers could phone a number, hang up, and be called back and then select from a menu how they felt about this multiple choice question. So we had 9,000 uh, voters, partic uh, farmers participate in the poll from right across the country. And we were able to package up the results and, and actually through a press conference present the results of the poll to the president and the minister of agriculture. And it, it had quite an impact. They, they, they were pleased to have had this way to hear directly from farmers what their views were on these questions. In terms of attitudes, um, there are, there are some stigmatizing attitudes. You'll know about uh, the, the impact of stigmatizing attitudes on HIV and Ebola, uh, mental health, and, and others. And sometimes radio programs that, uh, that have an interactive component, but also a drama component or a, uh, quite an entertaining sort of component to it can really shift attitudes. And there's a couple of examples. We've, we've worked on a youth mental health program in Malawi and Tanzania that includes both a very uh, youth-oriented drama, sort of a soap opera with characters that's, that's very engaging, and a talk show that follows it, during which uh, listeners can phone in with their questions and weigh in on their views and, and really deal uh, with some of these challenging issues uh, around mental health in this case. So we've seen some real changes as a result in, in youth knowledge about mental health and some shifts in attitudes beginning. And again, a very popular program. We also did a reality radio show in Mali in which we tracked uh, six uh, young farmers, or they, they weren't farmers at the beginning. Uh, they grew up on a farm but, but thought their future lay somewhere else. But they were challenged to try farming uh, as a business and were tracked over a 12-week period as they tried a farming enterprise. And they were the subject then of sort of documentaries which tracked their... Uh, and then listeners could uh, phone in and participate in panel discussions afterwards, and they could also vote on which farmer they thought was doing the best. And in the end, um, we had... Uh, you can see the impact on knowledge uh, score. But in the end, there were over 4,000 people in, this, uh, in the area served by this uh, radio drama who participated uh, beeping, uh, beep, we call the beep to vote, beeping on who, which, uh, which contestant they felt should be recognized as Mali's best new farmer. So some of the, some of the challenges um, that, that we think are, are facing us going forward you know, the, the, it's so inexpensive on a per-farmer reach basis, but it's not, uh, it's, it, it still requires an investment in the research and the <clears throat> planning and the design. And some it, it, sort of having that, the value of it understood so that the costs are recognized <clears throat> is not always easy. Um, the content, it's very easy when you have live programs and presenters uh, doing a live show with their audience for misinformation to go out uh, and, and inaccurate or, or, or uh, misconceptions actually being reinforced or stigmatizing attitudes being <laughs> reinforced rather than challenged. So it's very important to provide the training and support from knowledge partners and others to the broadcasters so that the right, uh, so that accurate information is going out. 
Um, participatory methods are new to most broadcasters, so it's really important to include a training uh, component that really helps uh, the production team at the radio station understand uh, how to do good participatory interactive radio programming. And in terms of a challenge going forward for what we're seeing at Farm Radio International is a need to bring radio stations that offer programming that meets similar standards of uh, certain quality standards and certain participatory approaches into a, a kind of a platform or a network that, that can be used uh, to interact with, with farmers and become almost part of the extension service in a country. So that's, uh, that's where I'll conclude and I look forward to any questions at the, at the end of the Very interesting, uh, very interesting material. I mean, we're having some recurring theme, the voice, and that reminds me sort of um, the Hirschman approach to voice and exit voice and loyalty. So what's happening is radio is facilitating this voice, apparently, from what we can see. What I really found very interesting is the, this innovation of Farm Radio International to have two lines, one for male, one for women. That's really a new thing to add to our projects in the future. Uh, pay attention. Uh, um, we're going to move on. Uh, we have been listening to some overarching topics. First, you know, political participation and, and the whole issue of voice, uh, farming with Farm Radio International. And now we're going to have uh, one topic that is uh, very interesting for me personally, is the area of, of work I, I have been pursuing. Uh, which is uh, what role plays radio, or what, what is the role of radio in improving health? And uh, Will Snell from Development Media International is going to present us some, I think, mid-term um, evidence from an ongoing research project in Burkina Faso that is looking at maternal health and children's health. And that's very interesting because it's, I think it's probably one of those um, uh, interventions that is having a very a strong research component. So it's showing actual evidence of what um, influence radio programming can have. So without further ado, it's Will Snell development, from Development Media International. Good evening. It's great to be here. <clears throat> As you can hear, my voice is a bit shot. So I'm going to play you a video, and then I'm going to gesticulate at some graphs. I hope that's going to make sense to you in some way. I'm going to talk about can mass media save lives, and at the risk of ruining dramatic tension, the answer is yes. <laughs> this is a short video from um, one of our um, programs in Burkina Faso from the randomized controlled trial, which I will come back to shortly, if I can find the mouse cursor. Young man, young man. Ah, <laughs> Quoi, quoi, quoi? Quoi, quoi, quoi? 
As you can tell, it's highly educational. I'll come back to what on earth that was all about shortly. So I'm going to talk a bit about our, our research to prove the impact of mass media. And I'll just start with some, some fairly boring stats that we all know, which um, is that radio reaches more people in Africa than TV. Uh, and that's great. However, what do we know about the impact in terms of health outcomes of radio shows that aim to change behaviours around health? We, as in DMI, um, have our own data from various projects um, from many years ago showing some pretty good outcomes in terms of before and after data for behaviours on health campaigns. This is a uh, trachoma campaign in Ethiopia, 2005. So trachoma is an eye disease, um, and the, the campaign was effectively promoting hand washing and face washing, face washing uh, as a way of uh, reducing prevalence. And what we see is a pretty sharp decline in children with dirty hands, uh, and this is an observed behavior, so it gets around some of the problems of people saying they're doing something like hand washing when in fact they're not. Um, and also a, a steep decline in trachoma prevalence, which is great. However, how do we know, um, firstly, um, what the health impact is, and secondly, how do we know that it was our radio show that impacted these, these behaviors? It could have been something else. Now, we're fairly sure um, that it wasn't anything else, but we would say that, wouldn't we? So, first off, we tried doing some dose-response analysis. Sorry, um, and this is another, sh another chart showing a similar um, range of um, behaviors across, across ish multiple issues. So a campaign targeting a whole range of sexual health and maternal and child health issues can again have a fairly impressive um, before-after impact, but we don't know for sure that it was us that had that impact. So we start off with what we would call a dose-response analysis, which effectively, and, and, we, and Kevin did something similar for Farm, Farm Radio, talked about a similar bit of analysis, which is to say, let's compare baseline data with populations who have had low, medium, and high exposure to the campaign, and hopefully we'll see a correlation. And what you can see is um, the blue or gray graphs, which is washing hands. Uh, this, is in this is in Cambodia. Uh, it's going up. Not massively steeply, but there's certainly a correlation as you uh, survey populations with higher exposure to the campaign and a slightly steeper curve for um, antenatal checkups. So that provides us with some reasonably robust evidence that it's us having an impact. 
However, um, it's still not conclusive. And so, um, and the other problem, of course, is that we can't know for sure um, how many lives can we save by promoting antenatal checkups? How many lives can we save by promoting hand washing? So, we worked with um, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine to develop a mathematical model that would allow us to predict the number of lives saved by running a mass media campaign on all of the key child health issues in a given country. So we're talking about prevention and treatment of pneumonia, malaria, diarrhea, we're talking about hand washing, breastfeeding, and the, a whole range of issues in that area. And the model works by looking at the impact of previous media campaigns on those behaviors, and then for a given country, looking um, using an independent tool uh, based, uh, produced by Johns Hopkins University in the US, which allows us to um, predict what effect increasing behaviors by a certain amount will have on number of lives saved. And the model predicts that a media campaign across a range of behaviors in an average African country will reduce under five mortality by between 15 and 20%, which is a fairly significant reduction. It also um, predicts that the cost effectiveness of a radio campaign that achieves this is as high as any other health intervention. Um, and this is a this very confusing graph, which I always mean to take off the presentation, but I always forget, um, because it's so confusing, looks at the distribution of causes of deaths of under fives in Africa. And you can see that actually an increasing proportion is neonatal, but there are still large numbers of deaths caused by, in particular, diarrhea, malaria, and pneumonia. And those are the four um, types, causes of death that mass media, um, according to the predictions of our model, have a real impact on. Uh, and this map shows you the predicted number of lives saved per year by child health media campaigns in a range of African countries. Um, so in a small country like Sierra Leone, around 5,000 <coughs> lives a year, going up to about 15,000 in Mozambique. And these represent, as I say, roughly 15, 20% reductions in under five mortality. Um, this is a table that lays it all out, um, which I won't try and go through line by line. Now, that's all very well, but um, you may well ask, how do we know that works in practice? Because the model, after all, is nothing more than a very large spreadsheet. So we've been funded by the Wellcome Trust and by the Planet Wheeler Foundation to run a randomized control trial. And that will do two things that haven't been done before. Firstly, by being randomized, it will pr prove beyond reasonable doubt that any impact is due to the radio campaign and not due to any other factors. Secondly, by directly measuring mortality, it will be, prove a direct link between the media campaign and a mortality reduction uh, rather than purely between media campaign and behavior change increases. So we chose to run this randomized controlled trial in Burkina Faso, which is what this series of squiggles represents. Um, Burkina Faso was chosen because we think it's the only country in Africa where it's possible to randomize media intervention. The, um, the consensus before we tried this was that randomized controlled trials, or RCTs, which of course are very popular in a range of areas, particularly in health, were not possible for media because of the risk of contagion between um, different groups. So for example, if you're running a randomized controlled trial in the UK, um, sure, you can run it on Radio Dorset and Radio Wiltshire um, and not have a risk of contagion between groups, but no one listens to Radio Dorset and Radio Wiltshire. We all listen to Radio 1 or four or six. Um, and so, and that's the case in most countries. So you haven't got this ability to 
um, to randomise between locally specific radio stations that enjoy a strong audience share. Burkina Faso has a uniquely strong community radio, radio sector and an unusually weak state radio for various reasons, and therefore it's an ideal country. So we randomly selected 14 clusters. Each cluster is effectively a FM community radio station based in a small town or a large village serving a, a rural hinterland, if you like, of around a 50-kilometer radius. Of those 14, these blue dots are our seven intervention stations, and the red dots are our seven control stations. So we have just finished, in fact, in the last month, broadcasting three years of health messages on the seven community radio stations in six languages. And we've, um, we've thrown the proverbial kitchen sink at this one. So we've been broadcasting 10 one-minute spots every day. And every evening, we broadcast a two-hour show on each of our seven stations, including one or two five- to ten-minute health, um, live health dramas, followed by phone-ins. And that very confusing toilet-based drama you saw earlier was one of those dramas. And those are scripted in Ouagadougou, in the capital of Burkina Faso, in French, and sent out to the stations and acted live in local languages, which allows us to produce and then broadcast at this very high frequency. Um, so, three years, um, we're just surveying, we finished broadcasting last month. There's a huge 100,000 sample size mortality survey ongoing right now, which won't produce results until the end of this year. However, don't worry, we have some preliminary results, um, and they are as follows. Well, I'm, actually, I'm not going to go through all of these. Um, but what you see here is the increase, the percentage point increase in behaviours, um, comparing the increase in the control zones in blue um, with the intervention zones in green. And from our perspective, um, when the green line is bigger than the blue line, that's good news. So what you can see is that there's a significant um, difference, a significant advantage, if you like, accruing to the intervention zones for a number of behaviours, especially those that involve seeking treatment for a particular child illness. So seeking treatment for diarrhoea, um, for pneumonia, um, malaria, not so much. We're not quite sure about that result, but we'll hopefully resolve it at the end line. Um, but what you see overall um, is that in six out of ten groups of behaviours that we, that we um, messaged on, there is a, a significant impact. And this is the first randomised controlled trial to demonstrate um, health impact of a media, a media campaign in a developing country context. This graph goes back to this whole idea of dose response and says, well, is there any correlation between how much we broadcast on particular issues, in this case, how many weeks to be broadcast on it for, and the amount of behaviour change? And the answer is yes. Uh, as that line demonstrates, the correlation is 0 0.53. Now, I did a history degree, so I have no idea about stats, but 0 0.53 sounds poor to me, but apparently it's extremely good. <laughs> so um, we, there's a strong correlation, and we are confident that the end line results will show that as well. Feel free to disagree if you know more than I do. Um, going back to the, the cost, now obviously the, I mentioned the model was um, predicting that this is one of the cheapest interventions. Um, if the trial continues to bear out the predictions of the model, then we will have some fairly good evidence that mass media is indeed one of the cheapest ways of saving lives and improving health outcomes. And this chart shows you how many years of healthy life, if that's not too weird a concept, you can buy, even weirder concept, for $1,000 um, if you had $1,000 to spend. And antiretrovirals is about 0.7 years. Primary care, so um, 
facilities and doctors, 2.4 years, all the way up to 166 years for mass media. Or to use a more scientific basis in terms of the cost per year of life, uh, you can see that mass media comes in at around $8 to $10 per year of life. Um, this utterly baffling graph demonstrates that, uh, don't bother trying to understand the graph, basically what it's saying is that as you spend more, um, your, incre your impact um, increases significantly so that your cost effectiveness is also much, much higher. So your cost per year of life is much lower as you spend more, which comes back to a point made by Kevin around the need to convince donors that you need to spend properly uh, in order to achieve results. And that's always been one of our bugbears, is that being that media campaigns in general and radio campaigns in particular have often been seen as add-ons um, and, and that's never going to achieve anything. I'm going to finish just quickly with um, at what we call our saturation plus principle. So we are keen to ensure, as we hopefully demonstrate the impact of our trial in Burkina Faso, that we try and set out some of the principles for maximising the impact of media campaigns in relation to health um, that we think make it successful. And the key one of those is saturation. And what this, this table is basically what we think is best practice. So. Um, you need to be broadcasting spots regularly. You can't just broadcast one spot a day and hope people will listen, or you know, uh, a drama every two weeks. So we think you need to broadcast 10 spots a day and daily dramas in order to have a real impact. And you need to broadcast year-round. You also need to broadcast in languages that most people can understand, which seems obvious, but uh, often is, is overlooked. Uh, and even more obviously, uh, broadcasting on stations that most people listen to. You'd be amazed. And this, this set of um, tables underneath effectively looks at what is oft, too often standard practice, which is that spots are broadcast uh, infrequently, um, campaigns are broadcast for short periods in national languages uh, on stations that have a primarily urban reach, which is great for certain campaigns. We focus on health issues where the target audience is poor and rural, so this is very much um, what we think is required. Um, and then science, so you need, we think you need, um, there's much more scope for a much more rigorous approach, both to the design, execution, and also the evaluation of campaigns, using mathematical modeling to, to estimate impact and then um, allocating airtime in order to maximize that impact, and of course, having a robust approach to impact measurement. Um, and that bit basically says that's not happening, which is bad. Finally, um, <laughs> stories. There's no point, you know, you need both aspects to be effective. You need to have great content that's effective at changing behaviours and you need to be um, broadcasting it in such a way that people hear it uh, with sufficient frequency. And so that's for us is about making sure that the formative research to understand the barriers really feeds into the creative process that your local script writing team is actually reading the formative research because they often don't. Um, and making sure that it's tested and properly tested to check audience reaction that your scriptwriters are familiar not just with um, the urban culture of the capital city, but with the, um, the, the, the particular culture of the rural target audience. Uh, and of course, in ensuring that your, um, your dramas reflect the key behavior change barriers. Um, these are some of our funders. That's just, just us showing off, so I'll move, move on. Um, we launched a campaign called Media Million Lives, um, which is aiming to, as the name suggests, save a million lives in Africa over 10 years by expanding um, national maternal and child health campaigns to 10 countries in Africa. Um, 
And so if you'd like to give us some money, please do. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Will Snell. I think what um, the takeaway message, at least for me, is this value for money idea um, and how health systems and funding of health systems tend to favor other types of, in of interventions and how radio actually is showing evidence of uh, more effectiveness for less cash. And that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, contribution. So thanks, Will. And now, finally, to close the, the uh, set of presentations, um, we're going to hear from Daniel Bruce from Internews Europe, who's going to present some of, his, from some of the work of Internews, but I think he's going to talk a little bit about the role of radio, and, and the Internews has been active in setting up radio stations in uh, areas after big events such as earthquakes and um, hurricanes. So that's an interesting uh, view on, on relief and the role of radio in relief. So Daniel Bruce from Internews Europe. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Carlos. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here this evening. Um, that's the end of my presentation, so I'm going to go back to the start. So just close your eyes for two seconds. Stop. No, don't give the game away. Right. I'm going to do two things, actually. Um, I'm going to um, touch very briefly um, on some of Internews' most recent and what I consider high-impact projects where radio has played a key role. But then, uh, perhaps as an appropriate um, closing tone for this evening's session, I'd like to turn to some of the key challenges which I think and which I, I believe recent research is showing exist for the radio sector around the world, but particularly what I would describe as the supported radio sector where organizations like ours have been working so intensively for the last few years and, and perhaps most especially in sub-Saharan Africa. Internews as an organization, if you don't know what we do, essentially we exist because we believe that access to reliable, trustworthy, accurate and timely plural information makes for healthier and more informed societies. More often than not, the, the projects which we operate, we, we currently work in the region of 30 to 40 countries in any given year, and more often than not, that information uh, is, of course, embodied in the local media and what we often describe as the information ecosystems of the countries in which we work. But, of course, that's not always exclusively so, um, especially in the age of the digital media revolution. Um, to give you an idea of some of the themes that we, we work across, um, across these many different countries, um, these are some of the issues that we seek to address through our own programs. Um, human rights, our human rights programming essentially focuses on, on freedom of expression and access to information in the countries where it is most at risk. Uh, we have a large environmental journalism program through our Earth Journalism Network, which you may have heard of, and it's certainly worth looking up as a very interesting approach, global approach, if you haven't uh, heard of it. Democracy and governance, helping the media to realize its role as the fourth estate and the watchdog of democracy in countries, again, where that may well be threatened or challenged. And tonight I'm, I'm going to touch on 
um, two of these areas in slightly more detail are, are conflict and stabilization work with media in countries transitioning out of very destabilizing long-term conflict and humanitarian responses, as, as Carlos has just mentioned. Um, and then I'm going to come on to some of these areas of challenge. Um, but first to the, uh, the Philippines. Um, at the end of 2013, um, and Typhoon Haiyan and the, the devastation that it caused uh, across a large uh, part of the country. Internews is a member of the British government's Rapid Response Facility, which is a group, I believe, now of around 27 international NGOs and charities and, and uh, other agencies who are poised to deploy at speed in the event of a humanitarian disaster. And uh, to give the British government credit for having a, a very nimble facility, um, it, it does do what it says on the tin. And once the Secretary of State has decided to mobilize funds for the Rapid Response Facility, uh, projects are usually turned around within 72 hours and you have to be up and running pretty fast so the first two projects I'm going to touch on uh, are projects which have been funded through that facility in the last year so in the Philippines um, we went to Guian um, a lot of the coverage of the typhoon was about Tacloban um, but actually Guian was closer to where the typhoon first made landfall and I'm sure you all saw um, many of the pictures of the news coverage at the time. It was an area that was totally flattened by this very powerful typhoon and literally the one thing which remained standing in this vast area of devastation was a radio transmitter big radio transmitter and a very powerful one, uh, mainly just the mast, I stress, that the kit on it had, had been mangled and destroyed. And there was no radio station at the bottom of the transmitter anymore, but there was still this mast that exists, which was a huge advantage when we went in and set up for a three-month emergency period radio backdoor which means rise in the local language. And we worked with a group of radio reporters who were out of a job, essentially, because they didn't have a radio station to work at anymore, to put together um, this, this radio station, uh, which was full of very rich humanitarian information programming. This has been a key area of our work in the sector um, over the, the last 10 years, really, to normalize the issue of doing proper two-way communications with communities who are affected by disasters, uh, man-made uh, or natural disasters such as typhoons. And so there's been immense progress in the sense that we're now seeing these projects happen and get funded at speed. And Radio Backdoor um, was, um, as I say, a very rich series of programs through to very detailed what we describe as humanitarian information service programs where the population affected by the crisis can get access to the news and information it needs to understand where to get access to aid and relief services, how to register as being displaced, but also absolutely critically to close this feedback loop to be able to get information back into the humanitarian system to explain what parts of the aid response are working, uh, those areas where more aid and relief needs to be directed, and also, and we have tangible evidence of this in the program in the Philippines, to root out um, corruption in aid delivery. And we had an incident uh, where the journalists working for Radio Backdoor uh, were able to uncover um, a large chunk of relief supplies which were being diverted off by one of the uh, more corrupt municipality 
um, local sort of administration centres, and uh, this was uncovered, and everybody was brought to account, and the, and the relief was released back into the system very quickly. Um, this programme was described by the uh, UK's Independent Commission on Aid Impact as one of the most cost-effective um, and uh, disproportionately high-impact programmes um, of the whole British government response to Typhoon Haiyan, which again resonates, I think, with a, a lot of the, uh, the points that have already been made by Kevin and Will in terms of the cost-effectiveness of working with media and information across a range of settings. We did something very similar in Gaza just uh, six months ago, a programme which finished in October. Uh, of course, we saw the uh, conflict spike again and... Uh, a lot of devastation and destruction caused, particularly in the Gaza Strip during the summer of last year. And once again, the, uh, the British government mobilized its rapid response facility. And in this case, um, we didn't have to go in and build a radio station because there wasn't anything there. Um, despite the devastation, much of the media infrastructure had survived. And we worked with a partner network with whom we had a long-standing relationship through some of our longer-term development network of uh, 10 radio stations, which covered 95% um, of the Gaza Strip, and once again, providing a regular stream of humanitarian information programs on these radio stations, carefully plugged into the official humanitarian system and closing the feedback loops between the communities affected by the crisis and those who are tasked with the duty of providing aid and relief to them. And say 10 years ago, this wasn't really happening um, in this way. And there's been an immense amount of work by Internews and, and like thinking um, agencies across the sector to make these kind of projects happen. And I guess the key point in the context of tonight is that the medium, which is so often all powerful in these responses, remains radio. Um, because you can get it to people fast. In the Philippines, I, I forgot to mention that one of the, the key things we did as well, because of the devastation of the typhoon, was to distribute many thousands of wind-up radios through local authorities um, so that people could actually make use of this service. So that's one of the programme areas that I'm most excited about because of its recognition and its growth. And, and again, as I say, the, the, the prevalent role of radio that we're seeing in this area. Um, another programme where um, we've seen um, immense excitement, but also some immense challenges, which really feeds on to the, the next part of my uh, presentation, is in Somalia. Um, we opened a, a media resource and training centre in Mogadishu in August of last year, and if you'd asked me two years ago if I thought that was possible, I, I would have probably said no. So the, the fact that there is a sufficient opening up and there is a sufficient level of security to be able to work more tangibly in supporting Somalia's very fragile very fledgling media sector to do its job in being the watchdog of peace and transition in that country is incredibly exciting. And what we're doing there um, is working with 25 radio stations um, in Mogadishu around basic journalism skills training, um, but also looking at some of the business and regulation models required for media um, in this uh, rapidly transitioning environment. And so I think it, hopefully it's pretty clear at the, at the risk of this being rather a boring panel this evening that we all largely agree with each other um, in that we all think media is powerful, it saves lives, it changes lives, it, it, it's, it's vital for public health information, it's vital for, for farming communities, it's vital um, in humanitarian disasters. And, and I don't think there's any disagreement there and, and the research that we've seen presented this evening um, already backs that up to some considerable degree of detail. 
and interviews is absolutely, absolutely in that school of thought. Um, on, on health journalism, I cast my mind back to Kenya uh, 10 or so years ago when interviews first started working there with an HIV journalism training program to improve the accuracy and the science reporting um, of the HIV pandemic. At the time, there was still a commonly held belief propagated by large swathes of the Kenyan media that it was okay to wash out your condoms and reuse them and that there would be no risk of uh, the HIV virus being transmitted uh, or other sexually transmitted diseases. Fast forward a few years from that, and, and, and these sort of myths have become the stuff of satire in the Kenyan media, uh, where today you're more likely to see cartoon illustrations of washing lines outside the shacks of the slums of Kibera with a load of condoms flapping in the breeze. Um, and, and just this, this kind of satire and fun poking at the things which used to be purported as fact by the media. So again, absolutely, the power of information to get things wrong, but also to get things right. And the power of the media to do that is, is, a, is a central part of what we do as an organisation, and as we've heard, some of our counterpart organisations in the sector. However, it's all well and good all of us raising funds to do this and going about doing these projects. But the real challenge that I think we're seeing for radio, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, is its very survival. I don't think things can continue as they are for two reasons. Radio stations are expensive things to run. They need money, and they need more money than us international NGOs can provide them with to go about their business. They need their own locally sustainable business models. And radio, although it is king and although it is powerful, is being increasingly challenged by digital media, mobile phones, and a, a younger generation that is more um, interested in social media and less interested in legacy media. So if it is to remain powerful and to continue to achieve the impact that we're seeing, it has to be able to survive and it has to be able to adapt. Um, I'm just going to pull on a, a, a very recent uh, research report um, compiled by Mary Myers, who is uh, here this evening, and with her very gracious permission, um, I'd just like to tease out some of the key themes. It's a, it's a different perspective, um, but some of the, the facts and data in Mary's research um, do actually point towards the scale of the challenge that, that we now have facing us. So this is from Africa's media boom, the role of international aid, um, as I say, authored by Mary, uh, for the Center for International Media Assistance over in Washington, D.C. And just look at these numbers. $600 million spent worldwide on media assistance just by the U.S. government and other media foundations in the 10 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Um, and again, look at this, this growth um, in Africa. Ten commercial broadcasters in 1985, and today there are over 2,000 private, private and community radio stations and 300 independent television stations. The title of this paper, The Media Boom, could not be uh, more apt. And as I say, Mary's research looks at the, the, you know, many things around the overall trend and the, and the impact of this investment. Um, the point I'm trying to make tonight, um, drawing upon this, is the challenge that the context that we're left with you know, all of these decades down the line is one of sustainability. And uh, there's also a nice quote in, in Mary's paper from Fax and Banda, who is a, a very respected UNESCO program specialist in media development and media support. Um, and he is, he is known for being quite outspoken 
uh, on a number of matters. And, and he says this, and he, he really sees this as a, as a double-edged sword, I think, in this quote. Donor fundraising has promoted aspects of media development, but it's also created dependencies and unsustainability. And then, obviously, as you can see, he continues to point to the successes um, that have taken place, uh, but uh, these successes are now not without their challenges. If you look at a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa now, we're already starting to see quite a bit of anecdotal evidence that the creaks and the cracks are appearing in some of the media structures and the networks and the systems that have been set up with some of that $600 million and some over the last few years. So my contention is that I feel that there is a burden of responsibility upon us as a sector, and by sector I mean agencies like ours, I mean our donors especially, policymakers, uh, and bodies like UNESCO to look long and hard at these sustainability challenges for radio and media writ large in sub-Saharan Africa um, and elsewhere so that the, the impact of programs that have been run to date is not lost, but also that the opportunities continue to exist to do some of the good work that we've been hearing about this evening. But we've got to think harder and pay more attention to the sustainability models um, of local radio and community media in particular. Now, a few years ago, but um, not that long in the grand scheme of things, 2009, Internews produced a, um, a seminal piece of work, the Community Media Sustainability Guide. You can, you can find it on our um, website, and I would encourage you to read it if you're interested in media sustainability um, issues and studying this further, um, because although it's a few years old now, some of the success stories and the models that it looks at that have worked well for media sustainability are still incredibly relevant. But more to the point, the challenges that we could see in 2000 and 2009 uh, are still incredibly prevalent today. Uh, Birgit Yalov says uh, you know, similar sort of points. International development agencies sometimes think it's, this just involves um, equipment, initial training, payment of startup and running costs for a few months or a couple of years, and off you go. Well, it doesn't. It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and, and that is the big challenge that, that we're seeing. Um, there's a nice section in the report which looks um, at research across a range of different contexts worldwide in terms of what has worked well for sustainability models for community radio. And it puts forward uh, a fairly complex, and this is just a high-level summary, mixed funding model approach, which the, the, the sustainability guide um, contends is, is one of the most viable approaches. Um, and we can see in this a few controversial things, which might be awkward truths, state-generated financing, um, but separated from the media sector by distribution through an independent body. And of course, commercial revenue and sponsorship, and then community-led fundraising, some of these intelligent macroeconomy ideas that we do see in some places, but still, of course, there will be a role for the foreseeable future for foundation support, uh, donor governments, and some of the international agencies such as our own. And on the adaptation issue, very briefly, because um, I'm aware my 15 minutes is up and the pub is probably calling, um, but uh, I, I find this actually more exciting rather than a threat, but I just think it has to be something that again, the sector would be at its peril if we ignored this um, across our organizations and in academia um, and so on. I was in Kenya, um, hot on the heels of the 2007-2008 post-election violence, uh, and that is when uh, the baby, which, which was then Ushahidi, uh, 
was given birth to, and uh, the whole issue of crowdsourcing and user-generated content and mapping, etc., etc. And I met a number of journalists up and down Kenya in community radio stations who were running scared of this new technology because they felt immediately obsolete because of it. And actually, we've seen this huge turnaround in Kenya, particularly over the last few years, with legacy media, again, radio in particular, really embracing uh, user-generated content, um, news verification practices that are required when social media has such a dominant role as a news source going forward. And then, uh, and most recently, as Kenya has, has become one of the uh, major governments in Africa to release a flood of big data uh, into the public arena, um, so Kenyan journalists have had to step up to the plate um, and understand what it is to do effective data journalism. And uh, the couple of screenshots that you can see there are taken from the Kenya Data Dredger, um, which is uh, a wonderful project which um, Internews put together um, over the last couple of years in Kenya uh, to provide some illustrative examples of how all ranges and all types of media can use big data effectively to report and translate it for audiences um, at large. Uh, but also to give journalists the tools and the techniques and some of the technologies that they need to make sense of this going forward. Uh, but again, this is a huge challenge, and as already been mentioned this evening, it's, it's very la mode at the moment, um, it's, but it's, it's not going away. Uh, the big data movement is a huge challenge for conventional journalism, but if radio stations get it right, it's even harder for radio because they can't do pretty graphics like this apart from on their websites, but if radio stations get it right, they will retain their relevance, and I would contend those who re remain relevant are also those who are likely to remain sustainable um, in the longer term. And there are also big issues, which I, I don't really have time to open this particular can of worms, around the analog digital transition, uh, particularly in areas of sub-Saharan Africa. One of the most at-risk groups, I would contend, uh, in that particular sector is vernacular radio stations. Um, it's quite easy for a lot of the capital city radio stations or the kind of various sort of capital-centric radio networks to find their way onto the emerging digital multiplexes, but it's much harder for these all-powerful, all-important vernacular services that are so key to a lot of the programs that we've talked about uh, tonight um, to make the digital transition without significant um, support. Um, so there we are. I mean, as I say, radio is king. My first love was radio. I spent most of the first half of my working life as a radio broadcaster, and I empathize deeply with the challenges, but also the opportunities that is faced by the sector. A huge amount has been achieved, and it's great to see the, the evidence base for work with radio in development and relief and so on getting stronger and stronger and stronger across the board um, all the time. But with that, my overarching contention is we've got to do more to make this work sustainable in the longer term. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Daniel. I think uh, very interesting points raised. Uh, one that caught my attention, or it's uh, very much um, related to my daily life, which is this uh, sustainability issue. And, and that makes me wonder how are we approaching um, training and capacity building, for example, when we go to these places to set up radio stations, and it's a lot about this is how you make a radio program, this is how you set up this. But are we introducing any element of um, innovation or um, enterprise? So, you know, a lot of uh, advertising, a lot of how to generate revenue through a community radio station is pretty hard. And I remember a few years ago when um, I, was, uh, I took part in setting up a community radio station in, in, 
the Republic of Congo with Benjele communities, pygmy so-called communities. And um, we're looking at ideas on how to uh, generate income and they came up with the idea of broadcasting songs, tailored made songs and actually people will pay for that. People will pay the radio station to be able to broadcast their own songs and that song was aimed at the girlfriend in the village far away or the mother-in-law or so forth. So I think we need to think broadly and think more creatively and what is the role also of other creative industries that are surrounding radio, for instance, music, uh, drama, uh, all of these uh, um, elements that radio counts on, um, but somehow in, in, in all these um, funding frameworks tends to be left aside or will be sort of part of the element but not central to it. So I think we need to look at the, all these other industries that are surrounding radio and see whether sustainability could be, uh, um, we can include these uh, surrounding industries in the whole agenda of sustainability of radio. But great talks um, and before I carry on with blah blah blah, <laughs> I'm sure you have been busy taking notes. I saw so many of you taking notes and questions and you are all desperate to ask your questions. Um, we're gonna do this in a proper source style. We have no microphone. So if you raise your hand, I'm gonna play the, um, the, the referee here and I'm gonna point and then maybe we take a few questions and then answers and we do it that way. So the floor is open for you. Any questions? Great. So the first question, is anyone willing to take it? Um, we are open sourcing a lot of our um, methodology, so we've published what we call the Saturation Plus Handbook on our website. I'm not narrating it, you'll be relieved to know. Um, and the results will be open source, so we're trying what we can to open source that. Uh, on the issue of sustainability or the farm radio? The question addressed to farm radio? Uh, okay, well, um, I'll try to remember the, the three. Uh, in, in terms of um, open access, what Farm Radio International does is, is, is processes that, that, that pretty much uh, anyone can, can use. There isn't any like patented technology we've got or, or, uh, or anything. It's, it's an approach and we write up our approaches and it's available and it's on our website and we share it with anybody who asks. You know, our, our, uh, we're not that interested in, 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 in encouraging other organizations to uh, do what we do to make, you know, if it's going to be a commercial thing, but if it's not-for-profit and open, if they, if they in turn have open what we uh, have made available openly, then we're happy about that. Um, so the second question was around uh, standards. I'm not aware of any effort to, uh, to, to encourage or promote Standards, it's a very, very tricky one. If, if an organization offers buckets of money for airtime, they'll be able to find a station that will sell it to them, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Uh, like our, our approach, and this kind of gets to uh, the next question when we work with uh, radio stations, is really to emphasize that the trust of their audience is what is their biggest asset. And um, that's what's going to allow them to be sustainable and generate uh, revenue in the long term is having 
a loyal audience that trusts them and being able to demonstrate that they've got they've got this loyal audience and 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 violating their trust by you know openly promoting them to sign over their land to uh, to somebody would would be would violate that but that that doesn't get at what you're saying which is very important some sort of a, a, a standards I don't know if you could expect those kind of standards from many governments um, and I don't know if they'd be I don't, I don't uh, know if they'd be the kind of standards that would actually benefit small-scale farmers or, or not, or rural communities. In terms of buying airtime, that's always the first question uh, when we ask a, a radio station if it, to invite a radio station to partner with us on a project is they say, here's our rates uh, for airtime. And, and, and we, we, we have to start there, but have a conversation about the partnership and the exchange and, and so forth and how Really, in the long run, the main benefit is not the the, the airtime money; it's it's providing a service to their listeners. Again, that there will make them a trusted and loyal, uh, <coughs> a, a trusted station that their listeners are loyal to, which is their their biggest asset. I mean, I I, I tend to think you know Toyota doesn't give us free Hiluxes and KLM doesn't fly me to Africa for free. So why should a commercial station give their airtime for free it's it's their main asset it's what they sell but again the, the conversation I think can be moved over time towards you know what's really going to help you in the long term is is ha having programming that's uh, trusted by listeners and having listener loyalty and using that to generate revenue from many sources so you have a good stable uh, diverse source of revenues um, I think the trick is not to try to sustain the radio station as a radio station, but to try to sustain a commitment to development-oriented programming. Um, they have no trouble filling up airtime with, with songs um, and other kinds of easier content. The, 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 the trick is to have them invest the time and energy and effort that goes into doing really good development-oriented programming. So it's you know really taking a partnership approach uh, th that we try to do to see at the end of the day how can this build your capacity to keep dedicating good airtime to development programming. Can I take the regulation question? Oh, sure. Briefly. Yep. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the short answer is yes. I mean, there, there are a number of countries where there, quite a lot has happened or, or, or is happening. Um, there's, a, there's a private consulting firm that we work quite closely with um, by the name of Albany Associates. Um, who have, have really led in this field and the, the way that they tend to approach it is they they often tend to get contracted by countries' governments to come and write their media regulation policies for them. Um, so obviously their, their client has a vested interest of the sorts, arguably. Um, we're working with them very constructively and in a very plural fashion, um, quite substantially at the moment in South Sudan, uh, which new country, so therefore it needs a new approach to media regulation. Um, and also uh, in the DRC. Um, broadly speaking, though, I would say that, that some of our interventions in this field, and, and it's not a massive area of internet work, um, but they tend to come when the existing media regulation model in a country is already considered to be a bit broken. And whereas Ofcom in the UK would describe itself as being a positive regulator, um, we therefore tend to find ourselves dealing with negative regulation, where the spirit of media regulation is less about editorial standards and less about quality of content and, and you know, respect of privacy and fairness. Uh, 
uh, and it's more about how the political elite uh, can stop bad stories about them getting on the radio and what legislative powers they can impose, and, and that's all too often the case. Um, so what what I've witnessed is as an increasing move, and, and UNESCO has been a big sort of driver of this. Um, is, is towards encouraging media sectors to self-regulate. And, of course, we've had a very heated debate about that in the UK for the, the printed press in the last few years. Um, good self-regulation works. Um, in, a, um, in, in certain areas in the Middle East at the minute, we're working with um, uh, counterpart organisations and, and other media groups to come up with media charters as a kind of first step towards uh, media self-regulation. And in previous life, I, I wrote a self-regulation manual for, uh, for UNESCO, um, and I will, uh, I will close with this on this point. And I, I had a number of consultative debates, and I was with some journalists in Kenya, one of whom was from a, a major national newspaper, and we got into a very heated debate about exactly the sort of scenario that you were just describing, when I said, okay, what happens if one of your investigative journalists comes across a story, and it turns out that one of your advertisers who makes, I don't know, washing detergent, is uh, polluting local water supply? Uh, with its factory in the city centre and uh, people are using this as a drinking supply and people are dying as a result of it. And uh, her answer was, well, it would depend upon the value of the advertising contract and how many people had died. <laughs> so the ethical scale, but low value advertising contract, lots of deaths would run the story, two deaths, big value contract, no would censor it. Um, and that's unfortunately still all too commonplace an approach. Um, I, yeah, I mean, there are some great answers. I'm not going to go over territory that we already covered, but I was really interested in the sustainability question and Mary's question and um, Carlos's point about the whole set of, of, I think, relevant cultural and industries that uh, surround radio. Because um, I think a really interesting way of thinking about this is DMI's work, right? So um, cost per life saved or life year added is so much lower than the next best alternative. So if you're really commercial about it, there should be technically this huge sort of arbitrage opportunity for the media to say, well, look, if you want to take advantage of this, then this is what's going to cost you. And they keep going up and up until the next best alternative um, becomes an equal cost, right? Now, that doesn't work for DMI very well, or probably not for donors. But the problem with that, of course, is so DMI does need to compensate um, the radio for more than just the cost of airtime. And the reason is that if the radios only ran health, public health shows, they wouldn't have the audience, right? So it's the whole, it's the whole ambit of, gambit of what they do that sustains their audience. And so finding that middle ground is actually really important for the radio station. It's also really important for all of these other Im important interventions. <coughs> and somehow costing in the sustaining of a vibrant and relevant media sector in all the places that we think it's important has to be written into the cost the core cost, in, and, and that's supporting the cultural industries as well, in effect. So somehow I think this has to be taken very seriously. There's a real opportunity to do it because we're seeing the power of media. There's an opportunity to take some of that and transfer mm -hmm. it back to the context of radio and, and in which it operates. I don't think that's a bad thing in terms of um, airtime, um, the smothering effect that sometimes airtime has. I think it, it has to be, it's a balancing that only it'll work. Um, but I think it's a real opportunity that does exist now that there's evidence being brought into the mix. Great. I think on, on that is how much of these cultural industries, for example, should be getting involved in developing the messages as well. So, for instance, I, ha I just had this experience with the Africa Stop Ebola uh, song and, and how a song can caps encapsulate so many messages, so many important messages that are taken by the uh, audiences in a very natural way. So according to ITU, radio broadcasting is over 60% music. So should we be thinking about this 
these other industries and how could we build their capabilities to deliver more accurate health messages, for example. And that goes, you know, music, uh, drama, uh, all this whole education, entertainment, which we have been kind of talking about without talking about it, but it's essentially what it is, you know, dramas, interactive radio, text messages, music, it uh, comes down to the same. Uh, but I think that that issue on sustainability is very poignant and very uh, difficult to tackle, basically, I think. Yeah, next, uh, next set of questions. Uh, the, the method that we use is they, um, listeners can, can flash a number, so phone a number and hang up, uh, and that triggers an interactive voice response service to phone them back, so then there's no cost to the caller. Very interesting, there's very The other thing that, that, that uh, we haven't done this, but I'm intrigued to try, there's a, a flourishing business of, uh, of people who, who, who create uh, playlists of songs, and they have little kiosks, and you take your phone and pay a few dollars, and they'll loan your load your phone up with, uh, with songs. And if the, if the content of the programs is interesting enough, podcasts, they could load up this podcast on my phone too for a few, a few shillings. So that, that's another approach that, that we're starting to look at. Any more questions? Oh, okay. Um, well, our, our agenda is, is leaving behind a sustainable, vibrant, plural, and, and uh, uh, skilled local media sector because, you know, for all the reasons that I described in my talk, which is, you know, in, in healthy information and access to it is, is better for society. It is the, the oxygen that allows us to breathe and understand uh, what, what is around us. So um, the, the work that we're doing in DRC is, is in four provinces, uh, working with 50 community radio stations to do some of the things that I've talked about, emboldening their capacity to be there uh, for the longer term and to produce higher editorial standards. There's another dimension in DRC as well, um, which is deeply concerning um, and was one of the motivations for our original intervention was the, the perilous state of safety and security of journalists. Um, it's, a, it's a dangerous business to be in, um, in DRC, and there are a number of organizations uh, working to provide protection and safety and security to journalists, a number of very specialist organizations who do that sort of work. And of course, we're trying to make sure that our partner journalists are able to access that as well. Um, so, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's a bold profession to be in, I believe, in DRC. And if we can leave behind a sector which is, which is better able to survive and, and, and protect itself and produce a better quality of, of information uh, in the longer term, for the communities they serve, then, then so much the better. And I think beyond that, we saw the we saw evidence, for instance, from DMI that it's it's actually saving lives. So I think beyond the agenda, what is living is um, improved health um, indicators, at least, uh, or health outcomes. So that's that definitely stays there. I think. Sure. I, I just would add that I, I I think it's a fair question. And I mean, historically broadcast media, but media generally is, is a place where agendas get amplified as well, and there's, there's no doubt about it, but I think there is much local agendas as international agendas, and they're sometimes, you know, good agendas, and there's some, I mean, in the Kenyan context, for example, some of the stations we've worked with, I think, on the one hand, you'll never have that ideal plural media because most of these stations are owned by MPs or people associated with parties or big businessmen or whatever. On the other hand, you have journalists working within those newsrooms who actually do 
and don't um, stick to you know, journalist codes. It's, it's a very messy picture, but um, there are agendas everywhere in this. I think that's the starting point in, in media is you, know, you start with the set of agendas working at all different levels. What can you still do? We probably have only time for one question. And you don't have to, but yes, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to, but Sarah. Um, so there, there is a limit to the amount of detail we can go into in the RCT, which is a you know inherent weakness of the RCT design. <clears throat> and one thing we'd like to be able to do but can't is to compare, you know, three spots a day versus ten, and spots alone versus spots and dramas. We can't. Um, we have some qualitative data that, that paints a picture for us, but it's not quantitative. Um, and, um, <clears throat> yeah, well, I, you know, we think that if you had to choose one format, it would be adverts, but we have no evidence for that. Um, and we'll, we'd like to do more research to prove that. We probably won't do many more RCTs. We're probably gonna look at quasi-experimental designs that are, that are more flexible, allow us to um, work in other countries and to start answering some of these questions alongside basic impact question. A very, just a very quick thought. I, I mean, one of the organizations which I mentioned at the end, um, uh, Well Told Story, uh, works with a comic, Shujaz FM, started off as a print comic, huge circulation and recirculation and, and, and all of that, but they've very much seen a shift to digital amongst the young Kenyan youth that they work with that's progressively becoming more and more important and more demand for content on mobile phones. So I think that's going on. But I just want to make some, one little point about radio that is important. That I, I think that um, a, a rush towards um, mobile and digital is at the expense of that social space that radio is so very good at maintaining and sustaining. And that's one of the most exciting things about it is this is a shared space and it's got its, all its problems, but it's, it's much harder um, in the kind of network design of digital communications for that space to be as shared in the way that it is. So the, the ability for radio to incorporate um, digital platforms but still maintain broadcast um, is, I think, a really, really important thing. Um, that, that's me speaking on the side of like, values, but I think it's a really important thing. I think, and, and I mean, in some of our humanitarian, <coughs> the humanitarian projects that I was talking about, Gaza in, in particular, the, the connection between mobile feedback loops and, and people subscribing for SMS data services and sending stuff back through polls and things like that is absolutely kind of set in stone in terms of its value from our perspective and, and, and is a cornerstone of the methodology um, in some ways. Um, what, I, what I've seen is, is too many radio stations who think that using mobile well is reading listeners' text messages out on air which gets really boring after a while uh, and tends to get people tuning out. So it's the kind of the creativity and the sustainability of the approaches, you know, putting it in, in creative boxes that serve more of a purpose than just text us about what you're doing today um, is, uh, is where it has impact. So, um, and, and it is especially relevant for the beyond the mobile enabled um, generation, definitely. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for our panelists and thank you very much for being here today. This was World Radio Day 2015 and we look forward to seeing you again, hopefully next year. Thank you.